Well, good morning. Uh, and uh, thank you, Grant, for sharing with us. And uh, that was pretty gangster when you started praying in your uh, Madagascar language, just going to be honest with you. And uh, I just want to say, and you didn't ask for this, but thank you and Jody for giving up 11 years of your life to leave your, the comfort of uh, where you're from and your home to serve uh, so that the gospel can go forth. Praise God for that. And we, we are so blessed to have you guys with us for this season that God has you here. Um, and, you know, he mentioned that in addition to giving directly towards the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, uh, 25% of everything that's being received is actually going to the Lottie Moon. And that is accurate because I want to praise God that this past Sunday, last Sunday, we met our budget uh, for the year. So once again, uh, for several years in a row, we have exceeded our budget. And uh, God, we just praise God for his goodness and uh, for the generosity that people are part of this church. And so uh, of uh, what's being given now, 25% of that is going to uh, supplement what's being given uh, to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Another 25% is reserved from some stewardship priorities. And then 50% of that is going to go towards debt reduction uh, so that we can uh, really be set up more in the future for what God is calling us to do. And every year, uh, the past several years, we have just had an incredible response uh, at the end of the year. And um, we're not superstitious. But Steve Renna, our administrator, has come and challenged the church every year we did that. And so um, we don't really have time in service. Uh, and if you know Steve, he's not typically very short-winded. Uh, but I've asked him to come, because our tradition, and challenge the church real quick. So Steve, you got like 30 seconds, man. <laughs> Thank you, James. James did say he might ask me to say something. And he said, but you have to keep it light and short. And I said, well, that's great, because those are two things that I simply don't possess. <laughs> and short, but I'm going to do my best. Church, we have so very much to be thankful for. Every day, God is good. And he has greatly blessed us. And as James said, we've exceeded budget. We've also paid off over $2 million of our $3.5 million loan. And much of that, yes, that's an amen. Much of that progress has been as a result of generous giving in December that is above and beyond budget. So we have that same opportunity right now, between now and December 31st, to have a tremendous impact, not only on that loan, but on uh, the gift to Lottie Moon to support missionaries that you've just heard about. So, so church, I just challenge you. Look, our goal, our mission in this church is to do whatever it takes for people to believe in Jesus, belong to God's family, and become who he has created them to be, impacting the world for Christ. And that takes resources. That takes generous giving. In fact, the scripture says for us, we should give joyously, joyfully, and that we should give ridiculously. So yes, I challenge you, give ridiculously <laughs> so that we can impact this goal. Because when Jesus gave on the cross, he gave it all. And that gift is eternal, and our gratitude should be eternal. We praise him in word, but the statement, actions speak louder than words, is true. And giving is an act of gratitude for his grace, and it brings great glory to God. So church, the challenge is, let's bring great glory to God in our giving. All right. Not bad, Steve. Not bad. 
All right. Well, uh, again, I'm excited to see uh, just the praises of how God uses uh, our people's generosity. And I'm just excited to be a part of this church and what God is doing. And if you're visiting here today, I just want to say to you, we don't expect you uh, to be a part of any of these things. In fact, we're just glad that you're here with us or if you're watching online this morning. And we would love to know you and we would love for you to learn uh, how you can get involved in the life of this church. Uh, you can stop by one of the welcome tables on your way out this morning if you're with us on campus or uh, whether you're with us on campus or online, you can text the word connect to the number that you see on the screen and one of our team members will follow up with you this week. Uh, in addition, I wanna invite everyone to join us Friday night uh, for our Christmas Eve celebration. Uh, we'll have three services, one at four o'clock, one at 5.15 and one at 6.30. And we'll spend time in the word, reflecting on the fact that the word has come to dwell with us. We'll sing uh, and worship uh, Jesus Christ and his birth and, and his life. And uh, we will have a candlelight in communion in all three of those services. And at the four o'clock service, there is a nursery available for preschool ages and below. I also want to remind you that the next two Sundays, uh, we do have services, but they're only at 9.30 and 11, and there are no life groups on those days. So uh, come and, uh, you know, pick uh, whatever service you want to come to. Uh, there's only a nursery available on those Sundays, so all the elementary age children will be with us in service. All right, well, this morning, we continue in our series, Let Earth Receive Her King, and we're looking at Mark chapter 8, verse 31 through 38. And we're actually going to take two weeks to look at these verses. In Mark chapter 8, the disciples have been following Jesus, and Jesus has demonstrated his power and authority in a lot of incredible ways. They have seen the miracle of healings. They have seen power over nature. They have seen the multiplication of food for provision. Jesus' teaching is incredible. People's lives are changing. Jesus, however, is not without his critics. And so in a, in a moment of clarity, kind of a pinnacle moment of the gospel of Mark, Jesus asked the disciples who they say he is. And the answer is he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. And Jesus praises them for this, and he says he's going to use them to build his church. Now, let me pause here and say that this is compatible with pretty much everyone who calls themselves a Christian today and what they believe. Now, Christmas time reminds me of how many people consider themselves a Christian. In love, there are many who I really wouldn't think they're a Christian until the fourth Friday in November rolls around. And what Jesus is saying about how he wants to build his church is compatible with that. It's compatible with what popular Christianity believes. The idea that we win. We want to be a winner. We want to be a part of the winning team. The idea that with God, all things are possible. And so all things are possible for me. The idea that God has plans for me, plans to prosper me. I, I want that. And so almost everyone who claims allegiance to Christ is for that. But this is not the fullness of what Jesus taught. And to only think that Christianity is that, well, it's inadequate. And it's imperative that we are aware of the teaching of Jesus from this point on, from this point forward while he was on earth. And over the next two weeks, we're going to see that being a Christian means denying yourself 
taking up your cross and following Jesus. Today, we'll take the first half of our text with verse 34 as a hinge verse that we'll focus on next week as well. I'll begin in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. It says, and he began to teach them. I said we must be aware of what Jesus taught from this point forward. This was the start of Jesus teaching this. And it was a part of Jesus' teaching ongoing from here on out. He began to teach them. He started teaching this and continued to teach this. What was he teaching? Verse 31 says that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priest and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus says that the Son of Man must suffer many things. The word must conveys that it is imperative. It is a divine necessity that this must happen. This is what the Old Testament prophesied would take place. When Peter proclaims the gospel as recorded in Acts chapter 4, he says that Jesus' death was the plan according to God since the beginning. This wasn't plan B. This was what God had planned to do since the foundation of the world. He says that he must suffer many things. He will suffer. And he will be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. The elders are the patriarchs, the older men of the high priestly families. The chief priests are the priests that take the title, you know, ranking other priests. The scribes are the experts in the law who study the law and know the law. And they will be rejected. That Greek word rejected actually means to fail to pass the scrutiny. Excuse me, he will be rejected by them. They would not accept him as the Messiah. He did not pass their test. He was rejected by his very own. And Jesus says, and killed. The extent of this, the cross, wasn't fully revealed at this point, but Jesus is saying he will be killed. And after three days, rise again. Yet he begins to talk of the resurrection, something that the Jews believed happened eventually to believers, even though some rejected the idea, but even those who believed it was, were not thinking anything like what Jesus would do and was likely beginning to explain at this point. Now, Mark tells us in verse 32 that he said this plainly. He said this plainly. It wasn't confusing. He wasn't speaking in parables. There weren't illustrations. He was just saying it pretty plainly. As I was given advice by one of my seminary professors is that when you preach, you should put the cookies down on the bottom shelf. Jesus was putting the cookies down on the bottom shelf. He was telling the disciples what was going to happen very clearly. And along with Mark chapter 9, verse 31, and Mark chapter 10, verse 33 through 34, this is one of the three clear times in the gospel of Mark that Jesus says what is going to happen, that he would suffer, that he would be rejected, that he would be killed, and that he would rise again after three days. And verse 32 says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He took him aside is strong language. It's telling us that Peter grabbed Jesus to talk to him. Peter grabbed Jesus and said, With all due respect, you're talking crazy, man. This is crazy talk. 
Now, taking someone aside and rebuking them isn't bad. In fact, if you volunteer in our, if you serve in our children's ministry, then occasionally you have to, you know, take a child aside and kind of talk to them about how they're acting and what they're doing. If you have six children in your house, then pretty often you have to do that in your house as well. And so, you know, if someone ever says something whack in your life group or the pastor says something whack, I mean, you should take them aside. Now, maybe don't call them whack or say what they said is whack. I'm learning to not do that. Um, and I'm trying to teach my face not to show that I think that, but that needs more work. So taking someone aside and rebuking them isn't wrong, but it was unthinkable in their culture for a disciple to rebuke his rabbi or master. And Peter doesn't only think that Jesus is his rabbi and master, he has just confessed that he is the Christ. He's the one they're looking for. He's the one that the Old Testament has talked about. And to be clear here, what Peter does is he accuses Jesus of saying something that's off, of saying something that is wrong. In fact, in Matthew's recording of this, in chapter 16, verse 22, it says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. In Peter's mind, this just could not be the right thing to happen for the Messiah and for God's people. Jesus must have been mistaken. Jesus must have been confused. And it says that Peter began to rebuke him, which means that Jesus did not let him finish his speech before he looked at the disciples and rebuked Peter. Mark chapter 8, verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, I'm not 100% sure if all the disciples heard this, but I'm sure they were in his mind when he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, I want to take a moment and quickly mention something. There are those who read Matthew chapter 16, Mark chapter 8, when Peter confesses that Jesus is Christ as the Lord, and Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not withstand against it, and I have given you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And they believe that as that is to be taken literally, that Peter is the rock, and that he has the keys, and so he is the authority, and so therefore, Peter, and then they begin to add to the Bible. After that, there is a man who is in the position of authority with the keys of the kingdom. But I just want to say this. If you take that literally, then is Peter also Satan? And I mean this in love. It just takes basic common sense to realize Peter's not the rock. That Peter doesn't have the authority and there is not a man in authority with the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Because if you say that that's literal, then you have to say that it's literal that he's calling him Satan as well. So let's address then, why does Jesus call Peter Satan? Now when I hear that, when I read that, the first time I thought of the church lady from Saturday Night Live. If you remember that, or could it be Satan, you know, talking about somebody, or uh, more familiar to me is the water boy's mama, who says everything is the devil, right? Foosball's the devil. So it kind of seems like an overreaction that Jesus would be similar here to the church lady or the water boy's mama and call Peter Satan. I mean, Peter's just upset with Jesus and what he said, right? And he doesn't want it to happen. I mean, is that really that big of a deal? But Jesus is saying, Peter, 
you are not looking to God right now. When you said, I am the Christ, you were thinking about the kingdom. And I will build my kingdom on that perspective, with people who have that perspective. But right now, and look at what Matthew says in chapter 16. He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus says, this way of thinking is a hindrance to me and what God has called me to do and what I'm to do here. You see, what Peter wanted was man's way. Peter wanted to win. Peter was thinking, with God, all things are possible, so success for me since all things are possible. Success for my ministry since all things are possible. Peter was thinking, how is Christ dying compatible with God has plans to prosper me and not harm me, to give me a hope and a future. But God's will was that Jesus would die on the cross. And Jesus says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, notice what Jesus said last week about Peter's, well, we talked about it last week. He didn't say it last week. Notice what we looked at last week that Jesus said about Peter's confession that had just happened, Matthew 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. Verse 17 says, Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I think we have the wrong verses up there. But he says in Matthew chapter 16, you are hearing from God. Now, our humanly natural way of thinking is not God's way of thinking. We do not always in our nature think according to God's plan and God's will. And we need then to hear from God. And we need to continue to hear from God because we are inclined to impose our will on what we hear from God. Now, why did Peter have such a problem with this idea that Jesus is presenting here. Well, it's the same reason that many rejected Jesus outright. Outright, They wanted an earthly king. And they didn't want to suffer on earth to the point that it was a deal breaker. That following Jesus wouldn't just give them the kingdom and the prosperity that they were looking for. And this is true for many today who reject Jesus, reject the gospel, because of the call to deny self. Or in our culture, they just make up a Christianity that says there is no suffering. Hence the popular out of context Bible verses. Hence the views of end times that say there's no way Christians will ever go through trials. And hence the worship of Christmas Jesus who's more like Santa Claus. You see, the call to discipleship isn't a get rich quick scheme. The call of the discipleship is not a tool to prove that you are greater than others. The call of the discipleship is not a guide to the easy life. The call to discipleship is not a path to the American or whatever country you're from dream. In fact, here's what Jesus says the call to discipleship is in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus says that discipleship 
is denying yourself. It's not believing in yourself. It's not trusting yourself. It's denying yourself. Jesus says that discipleship is taking up your cross. It's understanding that for God's kingdom, there is a path that he has for you. And the path that Jesus took to the cross was one of true denial of self and death so that others could have life and that we're invited in that and to fix our eyes on Jesus. You see, Christianity is an exchange of fleshly pursuits for godly pursuits. It's a recognition that in my flesh, I cannot trust myself. In my flesh, I cannot believe in myself. In my flesh, I cannot just do what seems right in my heart. I cannot pursue what I naturally want to pursue. I need to then exchange that for pursuing what God wants for me. But when God's will for me doesn't seem to be what is best for me or what is best by the standards around me, I struggle with it. I argue with him. And I begin to really question, is God really for me? And if God is really for me, then why is this part of my life so challenging? If God is really for me, why are my dreams not coming true when others are? If God is really for me, why is doing what he said not necessarily producing the results that it should? If God is really for me, why am I so sick? If God is really for me, then why is life full of pain and suffering and death? Well, God is for you. The scripture tells us that God is for us. And he's for us living the life we were intended and created to live, which will bring true fulfillment. But this may cause great tension if we are pursuing the flesh. And it may disrupt the peace that we would have if we just continued on our own path. But God's will brings true peace. That's what Christmas, or one of the themes of Christmas is that Christ brings peace. In the famous Christmas story passage in Luke 2, 14, it says, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased, or on those whom his favor rests. This says when you come to the place where you recognize that we don't have peace if we trust in ourselves, that this world doesn't have peace if we trust in ourselves without God, and we say glory to God, then we have the true peace that has come to be given to us. That's the focus of Christmas. I mean, if you really think about some of the songs we sing, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. This is saying there is peace for those who know that they need peace. And it's only found in God. 
I think the Westminster Catechism really summarizes the Christian life and really summarizes Luke chapter 2 and verse 14 and what it's saying. When in the Westminster Catechism it says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief of demand, the purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. When I was saying discipleship is not this, discipleship is not this, I thought about saying discipleship is not your best life now, kind of making fun of um, a popular book that has some Christianity in it. Um, and, but, but I was really thinking about that. Discipleship is your best life now. Christianity is your best life now. We're just in danger when we define best and life and now and you're apart from God. You see, I said Christianity is an exchange of fleshly pursuits for godly pursuits. It is receiving God's best for us, which is so much better than our best for us. And the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, and that starts now. Now, we begin to doubt, right, that God is for us when things are difficult, when things aren't like we think they should be. When we doubt that God is for us, we look to the cross. And the cross doesn't tell us every reason why we're going through what it is or God's plan was that we experienced or suffered what we suffered. But here's what the cross does tell us. The cross tells us that God is not up in heaven telling us stick it, stick through it, stick to it, suffer, it's worth it. The cross tells us that God himself has suffered because it's worth it. And what we see in Christ is that Jesus exchanged earthly glory from man for eternal glory from the Father. Jesus exchanged earthly glory from man for eternal glory from the Father. The choice for Jesus was obedience or compromise God's will. Compromising God's will would have brought him more success on earth. It was what his people who were closest to him wanted. But he knew, Peter, if I resist my plan to die, if you resist my plan for me to die, you resist God. You side with Satan against God. Satan doesn't want me dead. J. Vernon McGee says Satan denies the value of the death of Jesus because he wants you in hell. Satan wants Jesus to bow down and worship him and jump off temples for fame and turn stones into bread for self-preservation. And the last thing he wants is for his life to be a ransom paid for his captives. But that's what God wants, Peter, or whatever your name is here today, because he loves you. Jesus is coming to die for you as your ransom is the love of God. And Jesus is the clearest revelation that God is for us. God is for us, and when we doubt that God is for us, we look no further than the person and the suffering and the rejection and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is God's plan for us since the beginning of the foundation of the world. I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter one, and I'm gonna read verse three through 10 of Ephesians chapter one. And I just want these verses to just fall on us in our recognition of who Jesus is, who God is, and who we are in him. 
Ephesians chapter one, verse three through 10 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is where our identity lies. The God, the foundation of the world, created people to know him and to walk in him. And the only way that that's possible is through what Christ has done for us. And in Christ, we have been blessed with all the blessings in the heavenly places. To deny yourself and to take up your cross and to follow Jesus is to exchange anything you can dream up for your life for something infinitely better sealed by the promise of a God who can give it to you and who wants it for you. May we respond to him. Jesus, we thank you so much for your death, your suffering, the cross, and the life that is found in you, made clear to us in your resurrection. And God, you have invited us to die to ourselves and to live resurrected lives in Christ Jesus. God, I pray today that there's somebody who's never trusted in you, who's never come to the end of themselves, that they would say to you today, here I am, Lord. I am yours. And God, I pray for all of us who are believers, God, that we would daily remember who you are, and respond with denial of self, taking up our cross and placing our eyes on you. And God, knowing that we are blessed in you. I pray all these things in the name of our King Jesus, amen.